Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. And while you're turning there, I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians 11, where Brandon was a little bit ago. And I want to read to you from verse 23. So you don't have to turn there. You can just listen. This is kind of an introduction which the Lord laid on my heart while we were having communion. And it sort of fits with a message today as well. Paul says, I'm going to start reading with verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's table or supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or you, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Then he goes on and instructs the church to take the Lord's Supper. And here's what he says when it's over. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. And what he's saying is a number are dead because of not honoring the Lord's table properly. But if we judged ourselves, he goes on to say, rightly, we should not be judged, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Communion is important. It's a time to reflect on the body of Christ that we are part of. It's a time to examine our hearts, see what's there, see if, this, if we're really evaluating the body of Christ as Him, as His body. We are part of His body, which He died to make. This is the temple now. The church is the temple. We are individually a temple of the Holy Spirit, and the church collectively is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the church doesn't function in a way that honors and pleases Him and treats each other with His love and kindness, it is in trouble. And guess who the winner is? Satan. Satan comes in and he seeks to disrupt 
discourage, destroy, divide. And I pray that in these days especially, we are praying earnestly that Jesus Christ will fill us with his spirit, that we will be men and women of God, and we will live for him. This, I've been asked to, to preach this week and next Sunday, and this is part one of two parts, the practical outworking of godliness in the church. Practical outworking of godliness in the church. If you were a seminary student and you were in the class in Romans, you can be dismissed now if you want to because we're covering some of the things we went through Monday and Tuesday nights. But if you weren't listening well, then probably, probably you should stay. Now, in this whole book of Romans, Paul is presenting probably the most prolific presentation of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. Paul is telling us in the early chapters, one, two, and half of three, both Gentiles and Jews are lost. They're lost completely. Their mind is conformed to this world. I want you to hear what he says, because we're going to compare this in chapter 12. In Romans chapter 1, just listen to these verses, beginning with verse 28 in Romans chapter 1. This is the way the world thinks. This is the way the world's mind operates. Paul says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Well, what are those things, Paul? Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's a fairly good list, isn't it? And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they know that because it was written on their heart, he says in chapter 2. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Keep that list in mind because now we're going to see the opposite when we get to Romans 12, 9 to 16, the practical outworking of godliness in the church, it's a totally opposite presentation of that kind of living. Totally opposite. He begins in the first part of this chapter, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world like in chapter 1. But be transformed, how, Paul? By the renewing of your mind, 
that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's going to tell us now that the renewing of the mind as a Christian and turning away from the things before that you conform to, he's going to start presenting those right here from chapter 12 to 15. What is it to have a renewed mind? It's all based on the Word of God. You renew your mind. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that the man of God might be equipped for good works. To be perfect is what he's saying. That the man, the man of God needs nothing more than to conform himself, his mind, his thinking, and his actions to the Word of God. This is his church. Christ died for it. We're part of it. Then he goes on in verse 3 down to 8, and he, and he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. We're prone to think we've got it all together as individuals, that as an individual Christian, I don't need anything. I just have the Lord. You know what he goes on to say in 3 to 8? No, you need the other members of the body because Christ has gifted you, each one of you. Some of you are a foot, and some of you are a hand, and some of you are an eye, and some of you are an ear. That's not exactly what he said. I'm using the illustration of the body, but what he's saying there is you have gifts. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are servants. Some of you are leaders. And all the way through the New Testament, Paul says you need to know your gift. You need to know that you can't get by by yourself. You need one another in the body, each one sharing their gift all or apart. Can anyone say, I don't need a foot, Paul says in 1 Corinthians? Is anyone, can anyone say, I can do without my ear, or I can do without speaking, without a tongue? No, we need each other desperately. We can't go it alone. And guess what Satan wants to do? He wants to come in and divide. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians and said, I'm aware there are problems there because some of you are being lifted up. And you're taking the Lord's table and you're not even being considerate of each other. These are important verses. When he gets down to verse 9, now he's talking about the practical outworking of godliness. Let's look at these verses, and then we're going to go through them. You can either divide them up into 16, or you can divide them into 12 and see that there are some that kind of go with each other. So to make the sermon shorter, we'll go 12, but we still won't exclude the 16 that are here. But let's, let's just read down through this. Paul says, and beginning in verse 9, he's talked about we need to renew our minds, we need to give our bodies a living sacrifice to our King, Christ. We need to use our gifts, not thinking higher of ourselves than we ought to, that I can do it without anyone else. No, you can't. Now he gets to the practical outworking 
let love be, and think of these again in light of what we read in Romans chapter 1, what we used to be like. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And do not be wise in your own estimation. Verses 9 through 16. We're going to look at those. These are so important. This is Christ's church. If we are members of it, he says, renew your mind based on the Word of God. It is God-breathed. It is profitable for everything you need to make you perfect. We need to hear these things, folks. And you, you and I need to apply them by the power of the Spirit. If we are going to be a church that pleases the Lord of the church, the creator of the church, the one who oversees the church. There is not a head of Front Range Alliance except one, and it's Jesus Christ. He's the head of every church and the church overall. He's the head. And here's what the head of the church says to his apostle Paul. First of all, we must love without hypocrisy. This is the word for love agape, which means the love that's being put into place here is a love which is sacrificial. It puts others ahead of me. It's that kind of love. And he's saying, let your love be, or we must love without hypocrisy. What's that mean? It's a Greek word that was used to describe a pot, piece of pottery in that day, if, for instance, the pottery had been cracked in its making or cracked somewhere else and it was on sale, they would have filled it with wax to make it look like there was no crack, to make it look like it was genuine even though it was broken. So if, if you were trying to buy a piece of pottery, you didn't want a hypocritical piece because the, the Greek word for this meant filled with wax. It's not genuine. He's saying, let your agape love be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. Really consider each other as more important than yourself. Be willing to sacrifice for one another. Do you remember when Judas comes into the garden 
and he comes up to Christ and he gives him a kiss. Nothing in the realm of love could have been more hypocritical than that. Because what did he have behind him? The people that had given him 30 pieces of silver to betray his Lord. That was a hypocritical act of love. Paul is saying, don't be like that. Put your brother and sister ahead of yourself and be genuine in the way you love. And then the second thing, which is interesting, he tells us to love and then he tells us to hate. But what does he tell us to hate? We must loathe or abhor evil and cleave to what is good. In our giving love to one another, Paul is saying we don't love each other in a way that condones evil or speaks of evil as okay. We don't do that. We continue to abhor evil. Matthew 18 says we may have to go to a brother and say, brother, I, I've watched you lately and, and what I'm seeing is you sinning. You shouldn't do that. And I'm confronting you as a brother that loves you. You see, because love does what is best for the other one. It puts them first, but it, it only does what is best for them. And if confronting them about a sin in their life is the right thing to do, then it's the right thing to do. Abhor what is evil and cleave to that as good. We're to be light in the darkness. We're to love with the love of Christ, but we don't love things that are evil. We address them. We, we speak to them. We, we hold up truth. He says, abhor what is evil and cleave to what? What is good. We cleave to what is good. Then he goes on with number three. We must be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's the word phileo in the Greek New Testament from where we get Philadelphia, which is supposed to be the city of brotherly love. You ever live there? Is it? I don't know. Phileo means this is a love which is family-oriented. It's like a love of a mother and a dad for their baby, for their child. It's affectionate. So we're not only to love with purpose someone more than ourselves and put them ahead of ourselves, sacrificial love. Our love is to be affectionate. We are to love, in other words, he is saying, you're to love members of the body of Christ where you are as much as you do your own children. Affectionate. Affectionate love. Isn't it interesting? He's bringing this all together. He's, he's really putting it before us. There's a purposeful love, putting your brother's interest ahead of your own, there's an affectionate love. I love you. And, and here's another thing that I've all often thought of. I should love you as my brothers and sisters in Christ more than a family member of mine who does not know him. Brothers and sisters come first. What did Paul say in Galatians chapter 6? Do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. I am to love you with all of my heart, put you first, love each one of you affectionately. 
affectionately. And more than I love anyone else, brothers and sisters in Christ. Number four, we must give preference to one another in honor. We're to give preference when it comes to giving honor. I don't, I shouldn't think about me. You shouldn't think about you. We should all give preference when it comes to honoring those around us. Was that going on at Corinth? Were the ones with money honoring the poor? When they came to the Lord's table, they ate everything. They didn't share. And some were weak and some were sick and some were dead because of the Lord's discipline and how they treated one another. I want you to turn to Philippians with me. This, this is such a, an important passage about our Lord Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. When we think about giving preference in honor to others, putting them ahead of ourselves. Paul says, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfish, empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also the interests of others. And then he gives Christ as the supreme illustration. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, in which he not only suffered physically, but spiritually as the wrath of God was poured out upon him for our sins. Let this mind be in you. Give preference to one another in love. Now these next two can be coupled and we'll kind of treat them as coupling. We must not lag behind when it comes to diligence and we must be fervent in spirit in our service to the Lord. I think they go together and I think they support the four that have already come. Love, abhor evil, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another. Now he says, be diligent in these pursuits. Be fervent. Be fervent. We must not lack behind when it comes to diligence. Be the first one to put these things into practice. Be diligent in how you feel about one another. These are important you must be enthusiastic, conscientious. It's the opposite of slothfulness. Don't just sit back. Be proactive. Don't lag behind. And when we must be fervent. That word in the Greek means boiling over. When it comes to how we treat one another, love one another in the body, it must be boiling over in us. 
be fervent in spirit, in the inner man, in our service, ultimately to whom? The Lord of the church, the one who died and gave his life to make the church. Number seven, we must be continually, and I'm going to couple these with three, get how these work together, continually rejoicing in hope and then persevering in tribulation and devoted to prayer. I think they all go together, and I'll explain that. First of all, we must continually rejoice in hope. What hope? He's already been talking about this hope in chapter 5 where he says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. He means the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming. Chapter 8, he deals with the same thing. The whole creation is groaning, waiting for his coming. But he said, you are my children if you suffer with me while you are waiting. See, we're rejoicing in the hope of his coming, but in the meantime, during this period, we're going to be persecuted for holding up righteousness, living righteousness. That's why he goes on to say we must persevere in tribulation. When we're hoping for the glory of Christ and waiting for that, we are to live in such a way that we know tribulation is coming, persecution will be coming, and we are to persevere. And how do we persevere? We persevere in His strength by looking to Him, putting our hope in the glory, rejoicing over the glory that is to come and saying, nothing matters. If I'm persecuted for this, so what? When Ann and I were praying on the way here today, we were thanking the Lord that we have a hope that goes beyond anything in this life. Anything in this life. We can't get caught up all with the present. We must persevere through tribulation, and we do that because we call upon God. Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not have, chapter 8, with perseverance, we must wait for it. We must hold on and look for it. The Lord told us that even in the Beatitudes when we were looking at that. It's in Romans chapter 5. It's in Romans chapter 8, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. And I'm going to turn there and read that just again to remind us. 1 Peter 4 and 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. You see how these are fitting together? We rejoice in hope. When we're rejoicing in hope, we remember we've got this world to walk through and we're to live one. We, we recognize the importance of one another helping me do that and we love one another, and we know there will be trials, and we persevere because we call on Him. What's the next thing He says? We must be devoted to prayer. Lord, strengthen me in the inner man with power by Your Spirit so that I can live in a way that pleases You. I can't do this. I can't rejoice in hope. I can't persevere without You. 
I can't do any of this. And then we get to number 10. We must contribute to the needs of the saints. And this can mean either just that we share in their needs, share in what they're going through by coming along and walking with them, or it can mean that we also share our worldly goods to help them if that's what their need is. It can go either way. We must contribute to the needs of the saints. We need to see where they're hurting. We need to come along and help, whether it's spiritual help, whether it's physical help, whether it's digging down and giving them some extra money or goods to help them. We need to know what their needs are. The needs of the saints should be important to each one of us. Do you remember in Acts chapter 4, the Greek word koinonia comes up, which has to do with having everything in common. Everything in common. I share with my brothers and sisters in terms of having everything in common common. Koinonia, Acts chapter 4, they sold goods and they took the money except for two, Ananias and Sapphira. And you know what happened to them. They, they pretended to do that. Others did it, sold and took all the money and gave it to the leaders to dispense with the brothers and sisters that had need. Number 11, we must practice hospitality. It's not exactly what we think of today. This meant, in the Greek language, entertaining or loving strangers. Turn with me, if you would, to 3 John, if you can find it. 3 John talks about this very thing. There were itinerant preachers going around. There were believers traveling. And the church in view here, many were trying to bring them in. And, and listen to them if they were itinerant preachers, but there was a problem going on there. But this is a display of what some were trying to do in the area of hospitality, loving strangers, loving those that you're not familiar in your own immediate personal body of believers, but others who would come along and need a place to stay. And in those days, there weren't a lot of places to stay. But listen to what happened here. Beloved, you are not acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. You, excuse me, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. And they bear witness to your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of the Lord. For they went out for the sake of the name, Christ, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be the first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly accusing us with wicked words, not satisfied with this. Neither does he himself receive the brethren, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church trying to show hospitality. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Do you see how that fits in with this whole scenario in 9 to 16 of Romans 12? Do not imitate what is evil, but do what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil 
has not even seen God. We're to practice hospitality. We must bless those who persecute us and curse not. I think this is a precursor to what's coming up in verses 17 and following when he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men as if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what is he saying here again? We must bless the... Paul, are you kidding? Bless those who are persecuting me and not curse them? Yes. That's, what, that's the way we are to live. This is the way we renew our minds. We used to live that way. We cursed those who persecuted us. We didn't bless them. We didn't love them. But he's saying, and he's writing this in the context of even in the church, you could feel persecution from some, but don't get upset with them. Don't get angry. Don't curse them. Bless them. Wow. Can we do that in our own strength? I can't. I can only do that in the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, love your enemies. Be good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's our Lord. This is His church. If I'm His child, I need to renew my mind and not think more highly of myself than I ought to, but recognize I need you. We need each other. We need to be living out these characteristics in the body of Christ if we are His, and indeed this is His body, and it is. And then he goes on to say, we must rejoice with those who are rejoicing and come along and weep with those who are weeping. It means we show sympathy. We see what our brothers and sisters are going through. I might be having hard times, but another brother might be rejoicing because of things in his life, so I, I just give up my hard times and I go and rejoice with him. Or on the other hand, if I am rejoicing and I see a brother that's weeping or a sister, I weep with them. I show sympathy to them. I listen. The only exception I can think of in this particular thing, and I think it's biblical, is I'm not going to rejoice with them if they're rejoicing over something evil. Or if they're weeping because Roe versus Wade got overturned. I'm not going to weep with them over that. But if their reason for weeping and rejoicing is legitimate, I am going to come along by God's grace and by His power and share what they're going through and weep with them or rejoice with them. Then he goes on to say, we must be of the same mind to one another. You could translate this, we must think the same thing with one another. Wow. We ought to be pursuing the things that bring us together, the things that we can agree on from Scripture, the things that God has talked to us about in Scripture. One way of thinking, 
one mindset that's based upon the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Live in agreement with one another. Be like-minded with one another. Sharing the same basic convictions and concerns. We must be of the same mind. And then we get to the last two, which can be coupled together again. And I love these as kind of concluding. He says, we must not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And we must not be wise in our own estimation. Or think of those two as he sums this section up, 9 to 16. We must not be haughty in mind. He's saying that we can't be snobbish. We can't separate people in terms of classes, rich or poor, black or white. We're all one in Christ. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we're to associate with anyone in the body particularly. Anyone, whether they have a lot or a little, whether they're different, whether they have slightly different views about some things. We're not to think, hey, I've got it all together here. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Recognize your heavenly Father is the one who knows everything. Part of our problem in this world today and the way Satan gets involved is people hear one side of a story and somehow they don't get the whole picture. They don't get the whole picture. That is extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Because we walk away and we think we have this opinion, we're wise in our own estimation. We know exactly what's going on. I would say in most cases, no, you don't. You don't know the whole story. You haven't been in a place where you're getting the whole story. Don't lift yourself up. Don't be haughty. Don't think that you are the end of the world and think that your gift is the most important. Your area of knowledge is the most important. You need to be ready to listen and factor in and not be wise in your own estimation. The practice of godliness in the church is especially important to us at this time in our history. We need to be men and women who say, this is Christ's church. I am his child. I will do my very best to be godly and to be spiritual and to take these principles to heart and to live them out. Our spiritual enemy is constantly seeking the weakest link to cause issues, to cause troubles, to stir up problems, and to draw everybody else into it and divide and destroy and conquer. We must renew our minds based on the Word of God, walk in the Spirit, pray for His power, produce the fruit of the Spirit, love one another with the love of Christ, and give no open door to the enemy. Slam the door in his face. You're not getting in here. 
because we are going to walk according to a renewed mind based on the Word of God. We're going to renew our minds daily and not let you, Satan, get in with what you want to say and conquer and destroy. Folks, I hope you're praying that way. I hope you're seeing the Word of God that way. There's a lot going on in the day in which we live. We need to walk circumspectly. We need to walk carefully. We need to pray. We need to come to each other. Put each other ahead of ourselves. Listen, weep, rejoice with brotherly love, with affection, because we're part of the body of Christ. Don't assume. Don't assume. Are you with me? This is what we need at this time. It's what we need all the time because we're in a spiritual battle that will not end in this life. And it's getting harder, folks. I'm one of those who thinks the Lord's return is not that far away. And the enemy is aware of that as well. And he's seeking to devour. Don't be a part of that. Don't be one, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, some of you are weak and some of you are sick and some of you are dead because you're not loving and treating each other properly. I hear their divisions among you and I'm very assured that it's true because some are being lifted up. Nobody should be lifted up in this church but Christ in any church. None but Him. Let's pray. Father, these are these are words which we want to renew our hearts by. Help us to do that, to be Christ-like, to honor Him, to live this way, to love one another. Oh, we call upon You to do that in us. Keep us aware of the enemy's tactics and his deceit and let us not be entrapped but to love you and know this is Christ's church we are his children and we are to be conformed to his image may we do that may we bless even when we're cursed we ask all of this so that we might lift you up and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.